Turning again in the Word of God today into the book of Revelation, the second chapter. Revelation 2, and we'll read again verse 13. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. With God's Word open before us, we'll bow together in prayer, commit our way on to the Lord again. Heavenly Father, as we come to Thy truth today, we pray that Thou will give the anointing of heaven that we need, that Thou will help in the proclamation of Thy Word here this morning, that Thou will lift up Thy holy book and apply it with the kind of application no man can make, but God the Holy Spirit most assuredly can and does. And so we pray for Thy great power, Thine holy influences to be brought to bear upon the remainder of our meeting today. Help us. We've been thinking in Helen's peace how great Thy faithfulness to us is. As a consequence of that, help us to be faithful to Thee and to Thy cause. In our Savior's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. The names Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, Justin Martyr of Rome, Cyprian of Carthage, are certainly not in common usage today and may not mean very much to the multitudes of people around us. But all of these men and many others, they shared a common purpose in life, and they received a similar end in death. They died as martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ at the hands of the brutal Roman Empire in the second and third centuries A.D. Ignatius was fed to the lions, and he cried out as he went to his death, I am the wheat of Christ. I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts, that I may be found pure bread. Polycarp was burned to death in the marketplace at Smyrna. They brought him out before the governor that day. They were telling him that he should swear by the fortune of Caesar and that he should say, down with the atheists. Now, you would maybe be thinking, well, why would he not say that? Well, at the time, Christians were labeled as atheists because they didn't worship idols. Polycarp was quite cheeky that day. 
an emotion to this screaming crowd of heathens around as he's been taken out to his death, and he cried out, all right then, down with the atheists. The governor told him to curse Christ. At that point, Polycarp famously said, I have served him for 86 years, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king, who hath saved me? They proceeded to burn him. Apparently, he was being baked rather than burned like a loaf of bread in an oven. And then the governor commanded, when he saw what was happening, stab him through with those flames, and his soul departed. The image is given of a dove flying up to heaven. His blood dropped down into the fire. Once he was dead, they just burned his body in totality, leaving nothing but ashes. Cyprian beheaded in 258 A.D., those are terrible times. And what tragic ends many of the true and faithful saints of the Lord were subjected to in that day. Edward Gibbon, famous historian, who wrote the book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he said regarding these martyrs of Jesus, they died in torments, and their torments were embittered by insult and derision. He goes on to say, some were kneeled on crosses, others sewn up in the skins of wild beasts and exposed to the fury of the dogs, others again smeared over with combustible material were used as torches to illuminate the darkness of the night. The gardens of Nero, Roman emperor, were destined for the melancholy spectacle which was accompanied with a horse race and honored with the presence of the emperor. The Bible adds another name to this illustrious roll call of the martyrs of Jesus when we come to the early church here, and we're talking about what we've read today in Revelation 2 and the verse 13, the name Antipas. You can picture the scene. On the banks of the river Caicos, Antipas spots one day a group of plain-looking people, and they're standing in the shadow of one of the temples that day, and a man's addressing them, that little gathering of earnest people, and he's addressing them with impassioned speech. And Antipas, going about in his business, he stops by, he pauses, spends a little time, wants to listen. He's thinking, what's all of this about? And his ear catches words that are new to him, but words, and he as a scholar has his interest aroused by them, regeneration he hears, atonement and justification and salvation, and replete through the language, the name of Jesus and Christ is introduced into that sermon. The next night, as Antipas, and he draws himself onto the fringes of that same group of people again, and he hears them sing one of their hymns of that day, Come, all ye redeemed, and unite in high hallelujahs to God, and sing with increasing delight, 
O sing of the Lamb and His blood, sing, sing His superlative worth, till we His full glory obtain, the chorus resound through the earth of worthy the Lamb that was slain. They were singing about John the Baptist's Lamb. John 1 and 29, heaven's Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the seed of truth, the Word of God, it lodged within the heart of Antipas. It bore wonderful fruit, and Antipas became a follower of the Lamb of God through grace. And he took in that time the first steps along a road that would ensure his name would be mentioned 1,500 years later, 1,700 years later, 1,900 years later, today almost 2,000 years later, and his name would be announced from the pulpits of the churches of Jesus Christ in parts of the world not known then in his day to have any existence at all, a convert of Jesus Christ. Of course he was that. For without a genuine conversion, he would never have qualified for the description and designation that our Lord gives to him here when he talks about Antipas, my faithful martyr. He had to be saved, had to be a follower of Christ, to have something to witness about and testify for and even die for. Today we're going to look at some leading characteristics of this early church convert. And consider, and this is the prime thing we'll focus on today, his steadfastness. And if one word could be taken out of the dictionary and applied to us as the people of God, you couldn't get a much better word than steadfastness. There's a lot of lightness today. There's a real lack of commitment. There's a cowardice. There's a falling away and a pulling back. We need people that will be characterized by this term, steadfastness. Antipas, my faithful martyr. So let's pay careful attention to the words here in Revelation 2 and 13. I know thy works, Jesus says, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name. Antipas was not alone. He was in a congregation of people who were doing the same thing. They were holding fast, steadfastly, upholding and magnifying Christ, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days, wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. And so we have an application here to the church in general. And you'll find that even after Antipas was taken out from them and slaughtered, it did not fill that church 
with a shrinking cowardice because they held fast still Christ's name, and they still did not, even though they saw what happened to one of their numbered Antipas, they did not deny the faith. Now, of course, that could be said about all of them. It certainly can be said about Antipas himself. He held fast the name of Christ. He professed to be a believer of His. He wasn't ashamed of the name Christian. And of course, that name back in those days would have brought incredible reproach upon the people of God, as we find in 1 Peter 4 and the verse 14. He had not denied the faith of Christ under pressure. He had not abandoned the religion of Jesus, but rather clung on, and clung on tenaciously to his confession and to his Christ. And so, there's a world of truth that is staring out at us from this one term, faithful, antipas, my faithful martyr. If there's a word that the Lord Jesus Christ would have in his heart to say, about you and I. As we exit this life, go through the gates of the heavenly city, if that word would be faithful, we would be right to be overjoyed. Think about it. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter thy into the joy of thy Lord. The hymn writer said, Oh, when I come to the end of my journey, weary of life, and the battle is won, bearing the staff and the cross of redemption, he'll understand and say, Well done. Are you living and laboring for that? Antipas' note was faithful, despite the contempt of the crowd. I can imagine a conversation. We are imagining it here. It is bound to have taken place between the, the prefect or the consul or some other important personage in the city of Pergamos where Antipas was, and he, he knew and he cared for him. Antipas, and he came to him, Antipas, what's this I hear about you? And you're, you're mixing, I hear, with those wretched people who claim to follow this dead man, Jesus, these miserable Christians. And Antipas, forthright as ever, just said, that's right. I'm spending time with them. I am one of them. I am a Christian. But don't you know when that consul is gasping here that they're all under suspicion, every last one of them, that they're being charged with a conspiracy against the empire, that they're to be blamed, and we have decided this is going to happen for every single calamity that falls on the nation, and they're going to be dealt with in the most ruthless way possible. Surely you don't want to be part of that particular crew. Yes, replied Antipas. I'm aware of all of that. I know the rumor is spreading of secret abominations being practiced by the Christians during their night meetings, but I can assure you that does not happen. I have found them to be law-abiding, hard-working, faithful, honorable citizens, supporting where they can the empire. While the consul continues, I'm afraid you've got to choose. You'll have to choose between the privileges of the Roman Empire, because think of it, a man of your ability, 
should be rising up through our ranks. But you have to choose between that and those Christians and your Christ as you call him. Antipas says, I have chosen. I will be faithful to Christ. I'd rather of Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather of Jesus than anything this world affords today. Loyalty to Jesus Christ costs something. Of course, the impact of the gospel has so changed the world in the century since the martyrdom of Antipas, and no doubt philosophers think we have brought about the change. Political parties, imagine they have brought about the changes for the good. You even get all of those anti-Christian amalgams thinking they have been a force for good. None of them has. All the changes and the liberties that have been gained and supported and fought for have been brought into our Western world by means of this book, God's Word, the gospel. That's been the changing force. That's what has, up until now, preserved our liberties. So few today, even in the Western world of this day, are forced to suffer loss on account of being a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, reports keep flooding in of persecution in many other parts of the world, Indonesia, Pakistan, China, Nigeria, naming just a few, many, many more could be named. And in the Middle East today, that ancient biblical heartland where so many of our main cities in Bible times are located, well, in Iraq, there's hardly a Christian left there. In Africa, the one continent which until now it's been described as being the church's brightest hope for the future, we've got Islam on the rise in Nigeria, in Kenya, in Sudan, destabilizing the regions, flaring up in murderous activity. And Christians, are the most persecuted group of people in the world. Eighty percent of all acts of religious discrimination against Christians, a report back in 2012 found. But despite risk of death, many Christians they have chosen to stay in these areas, and they have decided we are the salt, we are the light of these communities, and we're going to stand for Christ. But even here in our Western world, we have no reason to rest on our laurels. The truth is, our nation, the Western world in general, is sinking fast, drifting further and further from God and from righteousness. Whenever Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California. Back then, he signed a bill in the state that would require all businesses, all groups that ever received a penny from the state, even a student receiving a state grant, 
They would have to condone homosexuality, bisexuality, transsexuality, and that was into all of the colleges, universities, everything. No exceptions were to be made for faith-based organizations or business owners who held, sincerely held, religious convictions. No biblical voice of opposition was going to be tolerated. Our country is little different. All of this talk about a conversion therapy ban, that's an insult to the intelligence at baseline level to the government and even discussing this. But it's an attack on God's Word. We have it again in Belfast now. And no surprises there, limiting preaching and anti-abortion protests. Doesn't matter what other show appears in time, there'll be no such restrictions imposed. You can guarantee that the targets have already been revealed. They've declared their hand, those who were promoting this. And with its ever-quickening lurches towards infidelity in our society, the Christian is going to be increasingly called upon to suffer loss as a result of his loyalty to Christ. Be 100% convinced of that because that is true, and I can envisage a night. When, like here in Antipas time, a group of his neighbors would have come round, they called at his door. They said, Antipas, there's a great show at the Greek theater tonight. 40,000 people are going to be there. We're going to raise money to prosecute the war against the savage Galatians. Some of the famous Roman gladiators, they're going to fight there tonight. There'll be exhibitions, there'll be dances, there'll be shows all over the place. You can't afford to miss it. But to their surprise, Antipas says, I can't go with you. I wouldn't be going with you anyway. This is the Lord's day. I can't dishonor it. And so many so-called Christians have a distinct lack of honor for God's day today. Clarence Edward McCartney once said, Sometimes I think that many people are laughed and scorned and ridiculed out of their faith, more so than those frightened out of it by persecution. It will often require more courage to be pointed out as peculiar, as old-fashioned and straight-laced. More courage than it does to face physical violence and persecution. And McCartney had a point. That's why we like what's written about Moses in Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. We're told by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. There's a lot of material in there, but basically, here's what it boils down to. Moses had a choice to make. And so do you and so do I. 
And I pray we'd be able to make the choice he did and that Antipas did to look at all the reproach and the ridicule that would come our way because I am professing the name of Jesus Christ. I want to stand up for him. We'd look upon that as that's where the true riches are found. Greater riches, infinitely more than this bankrupt old world can offer. There's an interesting passage in Tom Brown's School Days. It tells of a boy who had the courage to stand up against the ridicule against everybody around. This new boy had come to the famous school at rugby. And on the first night, and there was a room there with 12 beds for boys, he knelt down by the side of his bed to pray. Tom Brown turned his head just in time to see a slipper rolling through the air, connecting with the head of that kneeling boy. But see where the lights went out that night? Tom Brown himself thought of his own mother. He thought of the prayers that she had taught him to say, but which he'd never said since he'd come to the school in rugby. And there and then he made a decision that the next time he would go to bed, he too would say his prayers. And when the next night came, the other boys in the room, they were ready to laugh, ready to scoff, ready to have fun with the other newcomer who had said his prayers on the previous night. And they were astounded to see Tom Brown, who they all respected and feared, kneeling down at the side of his bed and praying. That newcomer, that boy's courageous prayer in spite of the abuse, in spite of the ridicule, won him the respect of all of his companions. And he went on to become one of the most distinguished men in the Church of England. Antipas was steadfast despite the contempt of his community, the corruption of his community as well. So despite the contempt of the crowd, despite the contempt of his community, if you'd been in Pergamos, you would have found it's a very influential city. In fact, a lot of the tours that go out into Turkey and that region and into the Middle Eastern area, they'll visit churches that are mentioned here in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And they might go along to Ephesus and Sardis and Philadelphia and Smyrna and Thyatira, but none of those have ruins like the ruins of Pergamos. Following the death of Alexander the Great, Lysimachus, one of Alexander's generals, he chose Pergamon as the depository of his vast wealth. He put 9,000 talents of gold here, put it under the guardianship of his lieutenant, Philatyrus. And upon his death, Philatyrus used the, por the fortune to set up an independent dynasty, and then it became the capital of a flourishing Greek kingdom in that area. The Romans too came here, and they made Pergamos the center of the province of Asia, and it became the hub of worship to the emperor. Here the government was conducted, here the temple was dedicated to the worship of the Caesar. And so the children of God, they would have been called out as they were in the days of Babylon, Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were called out in Pergamos to cry, Caesar is Lord, an influential city. 
It was an intellectual city as well. Philosophers loved it. Students thronged into it. If you wanted to go to a library that was very impressive, you couldn't go to many better libraries than the one that was at Pergamos, built by Eumenes II. It was the second of the three famous ancient libraries in the world, containing 200,000 volumes. In fact, Mark Anthony gave them to Cleopatra as a wedding present to be added to the collection in the library they had down in Alexandrium. So a very intellectual city, as well as being influential, it was also idolatrous. It was the center of worship for the God of healing. Aishul Appius. False God here was worshiped under the symbol of the serpent. We're thinking Genesis 3. We're thinking Revelation 12 and 9, Revelation 20 and the verse 2. The famous altar of Zeus was also here. So we have a city given over to idolatry. It was an iniquitous place. So much so that Christ says here to the church in Pergamos, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. The word seat in your margin is probably rendered throne. The devil lived here. It was his domain. He was enthroned in Pergamos. And I know it's true that in every sense, every single great city is a seat of Satan where thousands, if not millions of people are thrown together, and there the devil has a field day, a great theater for the display of his invidious and infernal power in cities more than anywhere else. You can see the devil's terrible havoc and devastation caused by sin in the lives of men and in the lives of women. But in the middle of the darkness, there's a shining light. There's a burning testimony. There's a vibrant candle. There's some salt. There's a Christian church. I know, Jesus said, thy works, and where thy dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thy holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. And in that church, there's this man who has been faithful unto death for the cause of Jesus Christ. How refreshing that is to see. It was said of Lord Summers by Horace Walpole. He was one of those divine men who, like a chapel in a palace, remained unprofaned while all the rest is tyranny, corruption, and folly. We know what Walpole is saying. This was Antipas in Pergamos. He's salt, he's light. He's a witness. 
He's standing to Christ. He knows, as the hymn writer asked the question, is this vile world a friend to grace, to help me on to God? And the question, of course, is rhetorical here, doesn't need an answer. The world has never been, never shall be a friend of the Christian. And yet, in spite of this, there are those in every age who will contend faithfully for the Lord Jesus. Is that you? Is that I? Christ has never been left without a witness. Paul's writing to the Philippians in, he's a prisoner in Rome. He's stationed there in the military headquarters of Nero, the emperor, and he says, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Philippians 4 and 22, even in the household of the wicked emperor Nero it was back then. There were people living for Christ. That emperor, his sins included matricide, fratricide. He was a burner of Christians. Eventually died an ignoble suicide himself. And yet, growing up in this uncongenial atmosphere, in this infertile soil were true followers of Jesus Christ. And maybe we think today, well, you know, my surroundings are difficult. It's hard in my workplace to speak out for Jesus Christ. The company that I work for, totally unfavorable to my living for the Lord. I need to be quiet. No, you don't. Remember Antipas, the faithful witness of Christ, located where? At the very seat, throne of Satan. Beautiful flowers can grow on the borders of a foul, swelling, smelling swamp. And so it is here. And I derive from this in Revelation 2 and 13, this fact, the Lord is aware of all our circumstances. He said, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, talking about Antipas, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. He says, I know all the temptations you're exposed to. I know all the allurements of sin you're surrounded by. I know all the excuses people may give that we could fall in circumstances like these, but you haven't, and I commend you for your faithfulness. Antipas walked alone into the no lobby in Pergamos. His name might be more of a title than a name, actually, because it's made up of two Greek words, and those words combine to mean against all. He's the great withstander of all evil around him, the valiant, the good protester. He stood up against the vast majority in Pergamos. When in three centuries down the line from him in the fourth century, we have Athanasius, a great theologian, taking a momentous stand for the deity of Christ, the fact that he is God against the heretic body, the Arians. Arius, their leader, came from Pergamos, by the way. Athanasius is told, all the world of religious thought is against you. And he simply said, 
then it is Athanasius against the world. Antipas in the first century, Athanasius in the fourth century. What about us? In the 21st, he stood faithful to Christ despite the contempt of the crowd, despite the corruption of the community, despite the compromise within the church. And you can read about that in Revelation 2, verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast here them that told the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that told the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. They had many points commending them as a church, but some that condemned them as well. Sin was being tolerated. They were living halfway with the world here in the church. And yet, despite that compromise, Antipas was faithful. His steadfastness, very quickly his sacrifice. We have another clandestine meeting. Another friend trying to be helpful. One of Antipas' old friends comes along in the secret, the undercover of darkness. He tells him, Antipas, I have information. You're going to be accused to the prefect of heresy and rebellion against Caesar. I thought I'd just come and warn you about that. Antipas didn't tailor his habits. To the cavern up on the hillside where the Christians met, he went. He worshipped. Maybe they were in the middle of one of their hymns. Angry voices then were heard outside, and the name of Antipas was demanded in a gruff voice. And when he rose up to identify himself, those Roman soldiers seized him, carried him off to a cramped prison cell under the seats of the amphitheater. The next day we have a huge crowd assembling. Antipas led out of his dark cell into the dazzling sunlight of that arena. Two soldiers lead him over to the wall under the canopied seat of the prefect. A clerk reads out the charge against him, a Christian guilty of treason against Caesar, an atheist who was attempted to overthrow the religion of the gods. Close to where Antipas is standing is a heathen altar. Will you renounce Christ? burn incense on the altar, bow before the image of Caesar, demanded the prefect. And Depas answered, I cannot burn incense on that altar. I cannot bow to the image of Caesar. I bow only to Jehovah. I am a Christian. And immediately that amphitheater shook with a shout. That was so familiar in the arenas of the Roman world, Christianos, Ad Leones, the Christians to the lions. This time he was beheaded, then burned in a brazen bull shaped altar in the middle of their iniquity and immorality. Reminds me of faithful in Pilgrim's Progress. There Christian meets faithful. He's ahead of him in the journey to the celestial city. Oh, he says, stay, he cries, I'll be your companion. 
faithful looks behind him and says, No, I am upon my life, and the avenger of blood is behind me. And he raced on. His steadfastness, his sacrifice, finally his success. Revelation 2 and 17 gives us more than a clue here. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving him that receiveth it. The hidden manna, true spiritual food. Food that sustains us here on earth. Through all the emergencies, it's Christ in all His fullness. John 6, 33, 35, For the bread of God is He which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Him that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth in me shall never thirst. Hidden from the world He is but revealed to his children and relished by them forever. Do you remember in Revelation 7, 17, we feed not only on the manna here, but we're told in Revelation 7, 17, the Lamb shall feed them. We'll feed on the manna there as well. The hidden manna. The white stone indicates holiness produced by God's grace in the life of the one who receives this white stone. It's inscribed with Jesus' name. And I can imagine that old hymn springing up in the mind of the person receiving this white stone. How sweet. The name of Jesus' sign in a believer's ear. Antipas is really a sermon in a name. And what a sermon it is, and what a challenge it spreads out before you and I today. Our Lord Jesus Christ is still calling for men and women like Antipas. To them He makes the same promise. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, you'll eat of the hidden manna. You'll be given a white stone. One of the most tragic events during the Ronald Reagan presidency was one Sunday morning when terrorists bombed Marine Barracks in Beirut. Hundreds of American soldiers were killed. A few days after the tragedy, Marine Corps Commandant Paul Kelly was visiting some of the survivors who were then in a hospital in Frankfurt. And among them was Corporal Jeffrey Lee Nashton, severely wounded by the incident. Many tubes running in and out of his body, more like a machine than a man. But he asked for a piece of paper. And he wrote something and he handed it back to the commandant. And it was Semper Fi. Semper Fi. The Latin motto of the Marines, meaning forever faithful. That was Antipas. 
He was forever faithful. Will that be us? That's our challenge. Lord, make us all as Antipas, forever faithful.